Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. The United Nations General Assembly just took place in New York. We're going to get a report on it from Maya Plintz, who covers technology and innovation at the UN and its agencies, for the UN Brief, a subscription-based news platform and a digital-first news site. Then we're going to hear from Ari Waldman, a lawyer and sociologist and professor of law and computer science at Northeastern University. He's the author of Industry Unbound, the inside story of privacy, data, and corporate power. First up, let's hear from Maya Plintz, who started her career in business news as a science and technology reporter at Bloomberg TV in New York City. She's covered the UN for years as an international affairs news producer and editor, and I caught up with her to find out what I missed at the UN's annual gathering. Here's Maya. I'm Maya Plentz. I'm the editor-in-chief and founder of the UN Brief. We are a news organization based in Geneva, and we focus on the United Nations, uh, the EU, and emerging technologies. And you're a new publication, so how's it going? Thank you. Very well. Yes, we have quadrupled our readership within one year because our listeners and and readers are spread in all four four corners of the globe. There are diplomats and UN officials that are posted in Africa, Asia, Latin America, the US and Europe. Excellent. So I wanted to talk to you a bit just to kind of recap on the United Nations General Assembly meeting, which uh, just took place. And, you know, there were some, I suppose, uh, in-person aspects of it here in New York City, Uh, not quite the the big gathering that it has been in years past as we kind of struggled through the pandemic again, but still some some consequential speeches and and meetings and other announcements. Um, And wanted to talk to you specifically about the ones to do with tech. Um, And it seems like the big headline that came out was around artificial intelligence. What happened? Yes, um, the UN Human Rights Chief, Michel Bachelet, actually made a very strong statement, a very forceful moratorium, uh, asking for a moratorium on uses of artificial intelligence in areas where their impact can be negative on human rights protection mechanisms. So this was here in Geneva, but the repercussions were felt in the General Assembly. And as you said, this year again, it was a hybrid format. Actually, the Secretary General asked everyone to try to minimize the delegation, the number of uh, attendees in local, in, in place. But actually, people did turn out much more than it was expected. People are willing to engage again, right? So they have taken risks, but calculated risks. But this uh, regarding artificial intelligence was a bit of a surprise that would come so strongly. It's a bold statement that uh, Mrs. Bachelet did make. But uh, at the same time, a very important one, in the light of the recent reports that the special rapporteurs for the human rights here in Geneva have made, they have researched the extent 
extensively in several countries, the impact of emerging technologies and in particular, uh, artificial intelligence. As we know, there are uses that have been uh, in government that, been, that have been detrimental to, to human rights. From the surveillance of human rights activists by Pegasus, I think the big impact was because there were several uh, reports that were issued in the last couple of months about this, the use of the software called Pegasus by the Israeli firm that was sold to actors that were looking to actually harm human rights activists in different countries. And that, uh, as she probably has access to classified information regarding that, that's why I think she came out with this very strong statement. What happens as a result of a report like this? We, you know, we see them, you know, kind of concerned about Pegasus, concerned about failures of due diligence by states and businesses that are rushing to incorporate artificial intelligence into their functions. What will, what will happen with this report? Where will it go? Well, now they have working groups, right? They continue the research. Their rapporteurs have mandates that last on average four years or more. Um, so they continue doing this exploration and they have this mechanism called the Universal Periodic Review. Countries get together and analyze the report from the rapporteurs or, or from uh, the independent experts. And then they look and they say, you know, all the countries get together and, and give a comment saying, you know, it came out that the United States has maybe, uh, making up an example, uh, has been using AI in ways that is detrimental for beneficiaries of uh, housing assistance, for instance. And um, so this has surfaced as a fact. The United Nations responds saying, yes, we are going to look into it. We're trying to, to improve the, the use of, of AI, for instance, right? That would be one example. The other is maybe human rights activists that have been persecuted or people who have been victim of torture in some countries, they will come to the UN, the NGOs come to the UN and they present and say, and then the report, that is included in the report, let's say Syria. And then actually human rights activists and NGOs can go to the government and say, you have to do something about it because you agreed during that um, event at the UN Human Rights, the Universal Periodic Review. So there is a slow progress towards inching towards, you know, changes in the legislation in the countries that are, you know, in breach of international uh, treaties. So another headline uh, that caught my eye was this conversation around autonomous weaponry, which to some extent is connected to the concerns about AI. Um, what happened there? Yes, that has already a working group within the United Nations that meets. In the, but this time, uh, because the report that was issued recently by the special rapporteurs, um, on the uh, impact of uh, artificial intelligence, it tends not to include discussions around the, the military uses of emerging technologies and their impact on human rights law. This is the other four, as I said, the laws that this little autonomous weapon systems are discussed. But this time around, because there is such a great concern about how these technologies are evolving rapidly and are already being experimented with that, that it was included in this report. So again, that is usually not something that they would discuss within the Un United Nations Human Rights Council, but now it will be on, in the conversation. And certainly the General Assembly also made references as well. 
So what else did I miss? Uh, you, you mentioned to me that there's some talk about uh, technology infrastructure going on, particularly in Africa. There is major work going on in terms of laying down the infrastructure to better internet access. But there is also the concern with software, with laying layers of services that can happen, right? There are two very important programs that are happening in partnership with uh, GIGA. It's called, uh, uh, it's a partnership between two uh, UN agencies, UNICEF and the International Telecommunication Union. But it is also with the participation, it could not be otherwise because the UN is, cannot lay down uh, infrastructure there is uh, Facebook, Google, and Microsoft are working with the UN agencies and governments in order to deploy these technologies, both hardware and software. With Giga is mapping out the infrastructure, the existing infrastructure, and then bringing the, the heavy-duty players to actually lay down the telecoms, the infrastructure, uh, as well as the software, of course. And then UNICEF is coming in, and Microsoft has several initiatives there, too. So all these big tech companies are there, as well as, of course, local providers. But this is something that has been going on for several years. It's just now that we are giving a lot more attention to this big tech companies that we want to know why are they there and what are they doing and so they can really you know bring whatever um, knowledge base they have uh, but at the same time not to trans not to transport what's not working in terms of uh, precautions we should have ethical precautions we should have in the uses of these new technologies this is the conversation that is going on on the corridors here in Geneva and in New York in general, uh, how would you characterize the UN's coverage or concern about technology and technology policy issues over the years? Is it uh, become a more important part of the portfolio? Uh, can we expect more papers and reports to come out of its various commissions to do with technology? Absolutely. Well, it has always been an issue, right? Like if you look back 20 years ago, when I was at the UN, there were discussions about, you know, new emerging technologies, it, its impact on, on the work of the organization, certainly. But of course, now it is more it's obvious, right, that we need this infrastructure. Um, so, and in the last 10 years, we've seen lots of reports. And of course, again, because the UN issues so much great reports, not, uh, you know, the news media doesn't cover everything and everything is very specific. Maybe the experts like know about it, perhaps. Uh, it works with the uh, universities all over the globe producing these reports in the private sector. So, but certainly it is something that's on the table and and the UN Secretary General just last year, for the first time, actually, he mentioned um, Zuboff's book on surveillance, right? So the question of the ethical issues of new technologies, emerging technologies, is actually coming to the fore, where before it was just this enthusiasm of this great connectivity that we all need and that we cannot have development without it. Now there is also a concern with the ethical aspects. And that, I think it's a very interesting shift in the last year or so, because of course the reports, you know, of the abuses by Facebook and the issues that happened through the platform, um, the, the, the issue of new technologies is not just about the excitement of the good they can do, but also of the ethical challenges that they present. So certainly a global issue. And Maya, can we have you back on again in future to talk to us more about what the United Nations is up to in this space? 
Yes, I would love to. Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure. I look forward to it. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. If you are enjoying this podcast, consider subscribing. Go to techpolicy.press slash podcast to find a link to subscribe via your favorite podcast service. While you are there, join our newsletter. Painstakingly researched and beautifully written, Industry Unbound chronicles the ways in which tech companies use their power to undermine our privacy. Ari Waldman went under the hood of the information industry for this project, and the result is a fantastic piece of law and sociology scholarship. That's how University of Virginia scholar Daniel Citroen reviewed Ari Waldman's new book from Cambridge University Press. The book is based on just about four years of field research inside technology companies, including interviews with employees and reviews of internal company documents. To hear more about the book, I called up Ari. Uh, my name is Ari Waldman. I'm a professor of law and computer science at uh, Northeastern University, and I'm the author of Industry Unbound, the Inside Story of Privacy, Data, and Corporate Power, published by Cambridge University Press. Great. And this is a relatively slim volume, six chapters with an introduction, conclusion that kind of take us through a setup on the problem and then get us into how to potentially fight back. Um, but I found the, the first chapter really interesting because it's not, not the sort of typical thing that you might encounter in a book on privacy. Almost uh, an ethnographic field guide or field journal in a way. Can you tell us a little bit about how you put this book together and what the, the insights were from all the discussions you had? This book is based on nearly four years of fieldwork and uh, fieldwork meaning interviews, uh, being embedded inside companies, interface ethnography, where you uh, ask questions of people at public events, uh, as well as reviews of otherwise confidential documents. I signed confidentiality agreements with my interviewees and with uh, companies that I was uh, able to observe so I wouldn't publish any proprietary information. But access was really hard, uh, especially when you're doing research on companies like Facebook and Google for whom investigative journalism, as we, are, we recently saw mo just most recently with the Wall Street Journal investigative reports, but previous reports by the markup and Washington Post and elsewhere, uh, these companies, in particular Facebook, said that they only allow their people to talk to academics either on deep background or they wanted approval of uh, any quotes and the final document. And that's a violation of research ethics to do that. Google only would have allowed me to speak with people on deep background and not quote anyone and not see any internal documents. So for those kind of companies, you now I wasn't invited in, so I had to speak with current and former employees. And for the companies that did invite me in, there were these remarkable exchanges that highlighted for me that for some people, there is no cognitive dissonance between making an argument in court or in the press that says, 
you have no privacy rights uh, if you share something on our platform or if you use our platform. Once you use it, you lose your privacy rights. There was no kind of dissonance between doing that and then writing a web page or talking to me or talking to other people and saying, we put you in control of your privacy. You can just edit your privacy settings to protect your privacy on our platform. And I think one of the reasons why that's the case is because these people who work for these companies, many of whom may care about privacy, I'm sure some of them don't, but many of whom may care about privacy have been co-opted by the systems and the structures that these companies put in place to either keep them ignorant or keep them out of focus or keep them without any ability to affect the impact of privacy and the design of products. You, you know, recount kind of going to the lunchroom with employees who are working on uh, privacy and products uh, related to privacy, conversations with chief privacy officers and general counsels in these companies. I mean, it's really kind of, uh, you know, kind of extraordinary tour uh, inside of, of companies. How many companies did you visit as a part of this book? So um, full invitations from about five companies Two of those invitations were for a couple hour meetings with people. Uh, three of them were allowed me to be embedded inside their inner workings for about a week each uh, in which I was able to attend design meetings, uh, follow people from their meetings to their desks, see how they do their work, um, just interview people while I'm there, just kind of observe how the processes go. And as I said, I signed confidentiality agreements because I wasn't interested in sharing proprietary information about what they're doing. I'm much more, I was much more interested in the how they do their work or what are the systems in place. So, of course, you know, the results or what I found, they're not going to be true for every single company. Every company is not going to do, is not going to take on all of these tactics or all of these strategies. But these are the tactics and strategies that I noticed while I was doing my interviews and um, observations, which means that a constellation of them, whether individually or all together, are part of at least some part, at least some of the ecosystem in big tech. You also talk about this idea of just the discourse and how the kind of discourse has uh, kind of permeated or, or affects the outcomes on this issue. Um, can you kind of describe like wh what the discourse is or how you see that? Sure. So it, when we're thinking about why do we keep getting products like glasses that have cameras on them and uh, websites that commodify every moment every, or datify every time we move our cursor, if we keep thinking about why we keep getting those despite the fact that we have all these new privacy laws and tens of thousands of privacy professionals on the inside, it's not just a matter of engineers not caring about privacy when they're doing coding. It's a matter, it goes deeper. It goes deeper, it goes as deep as to the basic idea about how we think and talk about privacy. So I'll give you, a, I'll, I'll give you an example. There were several groups of privacy professionals and privacy lawyers who were uh, honest when they told me that ever since the GDPR or over the last couple of years, we've been doing so much more work. Like our days are full. I'm spending, some people kept saying, I'm spending many hours overtime, not that they get paid overtime, but many hours only getting four hours of sleep a night because they're doing so much work and producing so much work product. But there's an, an elision there, right? You, you conflate the amount of work that you're doing to actually having an impact. 
And here's where discourse matters, because if a privacy office is doing a lot of work, yet underlying their work is a conception of privacy that is favorable to industry, particularly privacy, what I call in the book, privacy is control, and other scholars have called it that. But this idea that you, we, we get to control uh, where our information goes by giving us choices, right? To click agree here, to toggle this button, to, to move that cursor, whatever. But if your idea of privacy is more choice, more buttons, more privacy policies to read, I don't care how many hours you're spending on it, the work that you're doing is not having a material or appreciable difference on the amount of privacy or our ability to protect our privacy on the ground. You talk a little bit about this idea of uh, privacy as, as compliance, the issues around uh, thinking about it through, through this lens. We do have some uh, laws in the United States to do with uh, privacy, uh, things like uh, COPPA, the, the HIPAA, the Graham-Leach-Bliley uh, financial data policy, others. But right now in this country, you know, we're still not at a place where we have a national privacy legislation. The Senate is just starting a new round of, of hearings on that right now. Um, is privacy compliance the answer? Um, will, we, will we get there with, with better laws or more regulation? Uh, well, privacy compliance is not better law <laughs> or better answer. Privacy compliance is the kind of privacy law that corporations want. And what I mean by that is, you know, after, after persuading or pushing everyone to think about privacy in a certain way, this idea of privacy is control, that it's an individual issue, policymakers and privacy professionals and people in the field, they tend to just assume or they tend to think that what privacy law is are the steps that companies have been taking for decades already. Uh, Hiring a chief privacy officer, building a privacy office, hiring privacy lawyers, filling out forms and keeping records and and completing privacy impact assessments. This, these kind of compliance tools, that's about half of the GDPR, right? What my colleague Margot Kaminsky has called binary governance, this idea that there's two parts. There's this individual rights to, you know, right to, right to access your information, right to collect information, right to delete and so forth. Um, and then there's this compliant, these compliance responsibilities that are placed on companies. The problem with that is that puts regulated entities, the people that we are supposed to, the, the co- entities that we are supposed to govern in control, in the driver's seat of what privacy means. So having persuaded everyone that privacy is about control, the next thing that companies do is they habituate us into thinking that privacy is also about pushing papers, about about compliance for compliance sake. And I heard and saw so many stories that suggested that this was the case. In fact, at one of the companies that I uh, conducted observations, they had a template a laminated piece of paper of a privacy impact assessment, which is supposed to be this form that helps people assess whether the products that they're creating are gonna create privacy risks for individuals, right? Is it collecting too much data? Is it doing it for no purpose and so forth? But what this chart did was it had some, uh, some descriptions does the product do this? Does the product do that? And then it had two columns, yes or no. And you were supposed to click yes if it did this or no if it didn't. And, but on the laminated sheet of paper, it said, always click no. 
always check no, <laughs> right? So saying that for engineers as they're doing this work, saying this does not implicate privacy or this does not implicate privacy. And when I asked a privacy professional from that company about that, I was like, well, isn't that just meaningless compliance that you just click no? They said, well, we have to simplify things for our engineers because they're not expert in privacy. And to blame engineers, to blame people who are doing the programming for the compliance for compliance sake that's coming out of a privacy office is just the height of gaslighting. So you've got this idea of kind of symbolic privacy. I think that comes through in that. And then you, you talk about uh, this idea of legal endogeneity. How does that correspond here? What's that about? Why does it matter? Legal endogeneity is a theory. It's a phrase. Well, you've uh, taught me how to say it, which helps. <laughs> <laughs> it's a phrase uh, coined and analyzed by the sociolegal scholar Lauren Edelman at Berkeley. And she used the phrase to describe how law with respect to Title VII, and Title VII in the United States is the law, is part of Civil Rights Act that prohibits discrimination in the workplace on the basis of sex and race and so forth. And she was doing work on, she was trying to study why there hadn't been an appreciable change in workplace equality. Why wasn't there workplace equality on the basis of sex so many decades after Title VII? And one of the things that she described was that the law of Title VII, which, ha which was never the substance of equality, it became off diversity offices, appeals processes, having policies, having trainings, these indicia, these structures of uh, compliance and how the law then in, was endogenously created from the ground up, from the structures that companies built on their own, like Title VII doesn't tell you to create an appeals process or to, uh, you know, or to have a diversity office. So, but the law incorporated those and deferred to those, these structures the companies created. So I'm arguing that a similar process is happening in privacy law. Companies have for quite some time filled out forms and kept records and filled out privacy impact assessments. And lo and behold, those are the requirements we see not just in the GDPR, but in many of the proposals in Congress and in the states over the last four years. So, and it's not just the fact that the law is endogenously being created from inside corporations, meaning that the kind of law that they're creating is exactly what corporations want, but Legal endogeneity is the use of that law, that endogenous law, as a weapon against the people it's meant to protect, i.e., you know, it allows a company to say in a brief to in a brief when someone sues for data misuse, they say, well, you agreed, you signed, you, you clicked agree when you signed up for our platform or you knew from these privacy policies that you didn't have any privacy interest in your data. It allows them to make that argument while still having these compliance systems and structures in place, right? So by having the systems in place, the company can then weaponize our agreement, our consent against us in order to limit our privacy protections while making their compliance work merely for show. So you talk a little bit about how the FTC, even with companies that it has under a consent decree, you know, it has to kind of monitor the assessments that they turn in. Um, but, you know, yesterday in the Senate hearing I was listening to, um, there was a lot of discussion about just the 
extraordinary extent, which the FTC is under-resourced, doesn't really read those assessments, you know, doesn't have the technical staff to really view them. I mean, isn't that kind of just a, I guess, another sort of symbolic level on it? It's not just symbolism to some extent inside the companies, but also inside the government? Uh, so you're right that there is indeed uh, a compliance for compliance sake or a box checking at the FTC stage as well. But I think they're intimately related because the system of managerial governance, which is you know, governance based on uh, you know, trying to achieve efficiency goals or productivity goals, values that are key to management or managers as opposed to social welfare, um, that my colleague Julie Cohen has talked about in her book, Between Truth and Power, the, this idea of managerial governance is premised on the idea that industry, when it comes to governance, can bring assets. They can bring expertise because they're the ones who are building the products. They can bring speed because they are more efficient, ostensibly, than government actors. So this idea of uh, neoliberal governmentality and managerial governance, they presume that public institutions like the FTC need industry's help to do their work, right? Because if it, if it didn't, like they wouldn't need to bring these assets. They wouldn't need to bring these efficiency benefits into the FTC. So 40 years of neoliberal governance in the United States has essentially created public institutions that rely on the fact that they'll have industry there to do the work for them. Essentially say, well, Congress, I don't need to give more money to fund the FTC because the way the FTC works is half of its job or three quarters of its job is done by industry itself, right? Or I don't need to fund the EPA because half the EPA's job is done by industry itself. So the managerialism inside companies is intimately related to the managerialism that, it, that characterizes how the FTC has long worked because they feed on each other. That shows the deep-seated problems and the deep-seated, like uh, deep-seated, intertwining difficulties that we have extricating corporations from from government oversight. So there's a lot of language of activism and resistance in this book. In fact, you say you know resistance is necessary early on, and you know folks can't uh, see you on the screen, but you're you know black clad <laughs> in our interview today. Um, <laughs> You know, what, what type of activism are you suggesting? What do you think people should be doing? What, what do you want to happen? You know, I mean, I know that, I mean, I, I would assume that you're, you're supportive of things like a push for, for national privacy legislation, but, but that's not enough. No, it's not enough. Uh, the kind of activism that I'm thinking about is inspired by uh, social movement theorists like Andre Gores. Andre Gores was a um, European social philosopher, uh, a Marxist philosopher, if you will, who uh, came up with this idea of non-reformist reforms, which are which are which sit between this idea that um, we should just tinker around the edges and make additional reforms that don't actually change the underlying system. Between that and uh, radical movements that think uh, that thought capitalism was just going to collapse on its own. Gorza's idea of non-reformist reforms are in somewhere in the middle. They, their goal is to work within the system to make our lives appreciably better, but their ultimate goal is to bring about you know structural change to the system. 
So to give you an example, like black think about defunding the police. A reformist reform is putting in an oversight board or an oversight committee inside a police department. That's not really going to do much. Uh, a non-reformist reform would be to siphon money from the police department and send it to social, social workers or mental health experts to respond to certain types of uh, 911 calls, right? So uh, certain types of defunding. That leads us toward a more emancipatory future. So I want to think about what a more emancipatory privacy law might look like through the lens of non-reformist reforms. And here I'll admit, you know, Books, any work of scholarship is always a work in progress. So I don't have all the answers yet. I'm still working through what emancipatory privacy law might look like. But in terms of what are some of these non-reformist reforms and what type of activism should we engage in? In fact, activism is essential. We have to build a stronger social movement for privacy because that's the only way we're gonna raise our collective consciousness about the ways companies manipulate us. Right? Informational capitalism doesn't have very obvious scars. We all learn, many of us learned in school about the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire or does E. coli in meat before we had regulatory offices that limited what company or that restricted how uh, companies could treat their employees. And you saw people jump out of buildings and die. In informational capitalism, we don't have that. We don't have the same type of uh, horrors to engage our activism. So we need civil society to start talking about privacy in terms of civil rights, to start talking about privacy in terms of how it's related to um, climate change, because these companies upset delicate ecosystems when they're putting wire and tubes underneath the oceans. We need, we need people to talk about privacy as part of labor activism, because we need to protect uh, workers who are doing research inside companies so they don't fire, so companies don't fire them when they, uh, when they want to publish articles that challenge the company's bottom line, as Google did to its AI ethics team uh, just last year. We need to talk about privacy in terms of race and in terms of sexuality and gender identity and talk about uh, how companies that extract data from us are actually causing great and unique harm to members of marginalized populations for whom revelation of certain information or data insecurity is far worse than for people who uh, are closer to power or have more privilege. So yeah, I think passing a, a comprehensive privacy law is fine, but it's fine up until the point that it encourages people to just raise their hands and say, all right, we did it, we've done our job especially if that law is just more of the same. So in sending this book to policymakers and politicians, the goal is to let them see that the track we're on is the wrong track. Now the Congress is considering, you know, there are 10 different proposals for comprehensive privacy legislation that have been in introduced in the last four years. Who knows when they're gonna pass one, if at all, but now is the real time that they, can, they have a chance to divert us from this path, from this statist, corporatist path that's giving, that's just a gift to industry. We've only got a couple of minutes left, but you've got this sentence that I think I'll have to think about for a while. By democracy, I mean that the information economy should be accountable to those who live within it. Uh, you know, kind of a big idea. Uh, you talk about tearing down barriers to that, and you name barriers to that, things like the First Amendment, Section 230, you know, various other things that are sort of I don't know, set the constraints that we work within at the moment. 
Well, what these law, what these doctrines do is they insulate big uh, technology companies from public accountability. So a company can say, well, it's our First Amendment right to um, to have to to curate and to determine what's in our newsfeed. It's our First Amendment right. We are First Amendment speakers, they say. That gives them freedom to decide what's going to be on their platform, to decide how they're going to use their platforms. First Amendment has even been used to limit the what governments can do to require companies to disclose information about their products, right? This kind of bloated idea of corporate power through the First Amendment is something, is part of the conservative judicial crusade. But Section 230, another law that has insulated companies from liability or any form of accountability because it has been bloated to immunize companies from anything that happens on their platform at the hands of users, the hands of third parties, regardless of whether that's harassment or you know, suicide or bullying or whatever. So there are tons of systems that are in place, all of which are stem from this uh, neoliberal approach to governance that scholars in the law and political economy tradition have really highlighted as what is insulating these companies from public accountability. So it's one thing to say, yeah, we need to give the FTC millions and millions and millions of more dollars, and we need to give them more enforcers and more, and we need to hire, they need to hire sociologists and data ethicists and so forth. But it's quite another thing, and I think what we really do need to do is rethink government and our relationship to industry such that it's not us that should be living in their world, which is what we have now. It's them living in our world and they have to earn that right to live in our world. Well, a call to action uh, and in many prompts to uh, more consideration in this book. Uh, Ari, thank you so much for joining me and I hope we get to talk about it again. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for this week's show. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to our guests. And of course, thank you for listening. Policy Press.